0: Testing one two three. Testing one two three. This is Radio Free Mormon on the air, broadcasting behind enemy lines. Tonight's episode: Daniel Peterson, the artful dodger of Mormon apologetics. You know I have a lot of fun producing these episodes for you. And if you like what you hear at Radio Free Mormon, please take the time right now to stop this podcast, put it on pause, and go to the RadioFreeMormon.org webpage. There you can make a donation. I want to thank all of my listeners who have contributed so far. Your donations are appreciated. And if you have not yet donated or wish to donate some more, please go to RadioFreeMormon.org and make your contribution there. You can make a one-time contribution Or even better, please make a monthly contribution of what I'm asking for as a minimum amount of $10 per month. Your contribution will help Radio Free Mormon stay on the air and broadcasting behind enemy lines. Now for the rest of the program. It is now June of 2019 as I record these words. And it has been just over a year since Daniel Peterson wrote his now infamous article for the Deseret News, on may 31st 2018 the title of that article was defending the faith the supposed scandal of multiple first vision accounts now as most listeners to this podcast know Daniel Peterson is a professor of Islamic studies at Brigham Young University, but he is perhaps best known as being the current reigning godfather of Mormon apologetics. And as such, he has written a number of books and papers on the subject of Mormon apologetics and also writes a regular column for the Deseret News. In his May 31st, 2018 column, he set forth what he intended to be a defense of the multiple First Vision accounts authored by Joseph Smith. And in the course of that column, Daniel Peterson engaged in the typical Mormon apologetic tactics of withholding information from his readers, as well as spinning information for his readers. But in that column, he went a bridge too far and actually stated something that was flat out not true. It was false. It was, dare I say it, a lie. And the lie to which I refer is when he states in his column that there has been no suppression of any of the First Vision accounts. Here is the paragraph in question. In other words, and now I'm quoting from his article from May 31st of 2018, in other words, believing Mormon scholars and leaders have known about and have openly spoken and written about the various First Vision accounts, for at least 50 years. There's been no scandal, no suppression, mark those words, there's been no scandal, no suppression, and the often exaggerated, if not altogether invented discrepancies between them have been thoroughly examined. When I read those words written by Daniel Peterson a year ago, my jaw dropped to the floor, because I know, as well as Daniel C. Peterson knows, that the original 1832 account of the first vision was indeed suppressed by none other than Joseph Fielding Smith, who, when he discovered it in the 1930s, cut it out of the letter book in which it was contained and hid it away in his safe for three decades, and it would have remained hidden away in Joseph Fielding Smith's safe in the church historian's office indefinitely thereafter, except for the fact that news of its existence leaked to the public, And because of that, Joseph Fielding Smith was compelled to have the 1832 account taped back into the letter book from which it had originally been cut out three decades earlier and then brought to the attention of a graduate student at BYU to have him use it in his master's thesis. I went over this subject in some detail. In my prior podcast, which was released on June 8th of 2018, when I called out Professor Peterson for his grossly inaccurate misstatement of history. Now, there are a lot of words that one can use to describe this action of Joseph Fielding Smith of cutting out the First Vision account and hiding it away in his safe for three decades. And suppression is one of them. There is simply no way to reasonably, logically, and honestly characterize that as anything other than than suppression. And yet, Professor Peterson says in his article, there's been no suppression of the various first vision accounts. Well, the 1832 account of the first vision is a first vision account. And yes, Dr. Peterson, there has been suppression of that account. I went over the details of this in a podcast that I issued one year ago on June 8th, 2018. And in that podcast, I called out Professor Peterson for what appeared to be an intentional lie on his part. In the comments section to his May 31, 2018 Deseret News article, I was gratified to see that a number of different readers called out Professor Peterson on this very issue. I'm gratified not only that they called him out, but also that knowledge of the fact that Joseph Fielding Smith hid the 1832 account of the first vision in his safe for 30 years is becoming more and more widespread. Here's a sample of some of those comments. On May 31st, 2018, the same day the article was published, Michael M. says the following to Professor Peterson. Why not just say what happened? Three pages have been torn out of Joseph Smith's letter book. Those pages contain the 1832 account, which differs from the canonized version in The Pearl of Great Price. Those pages were not lost and forgotten. <laughs> That's another thing that Daniel Peterson said in the article was that the 1832 account was lost and forgotten. Those pages were not lost and forgotten. Their whereabouts were known by leading members of the church. They were kept in a locked vault and not allowed to be viewed. In the 1960s, Gerald and Sandra Tanner published about this. And after the cat was out of the bag, the pages were returned to the letter book and were allowed to be seen. Today's article failed to address this matter and merely tries to dismiss the fact that the LDS Church did hide this differing account. Well put, Michael M. Another comment was made by Ryan Bush of Carlsbad. He states, I don't find articles like this helpful. When Dr. Peterson leaves out important facts, like where the 1832 account was lost, and the details behind that story. As Elder Snow, that would be the church historian at the time, as Elder Snow has recently stated, my view is that being open to our church history solves a whole lot more questions than it creates. More transparency will help the church move forward rather than perpetuating a false narrative, concludes Ryan Bush. Another commenter to this article states, Wow, Dan, really? An article about how honest and transparent the church has been about the different First Vision accounts, and you fail to give even the tiniest bit of detail about how the Joseph Smith history account went missing for so many years, one of the more dishonest acts in the history of the church. This was a fluff piece to shore up a few testimonies of members who are easily pacified because someone with an impressive degree, who is also a believing member, said so. There are so many problems with the different versions, and how one went missing, and yet this article is basically just patting members on the head and saying there is nothing to see here. Someone needs to explain to me how Joseph Smith's own private journal, written by his own hand, somehow was not the correct audience for revealing that he had a visit and personal conversation with God the Father. And yet Dan still brushes it off as if the critics are concerned about something silly. Wow. And finally, this comment to Dan's article. I understand the need for apologists to blur the facts, but this article is misleading on almost every issue. The 1832 account was torn out of the letter book by Joseph Fielding Smith and was only restored once the details leaked out that it existed. The Joseph Smith papers online show the tape that put the pages back in. There is nothing transparent. About that. So, as I say, a number of the better informed commenters to Daniel C. Peterson's article were quick to identify where Professor Peterson was playing fast and loose with the facts. My podcast on the subject came out on Friday, June 8th, 2018. It was titled Selling Your Soul for Apologetics and made the argument that Professor Peterson had come to the point in his apologetic career where he was willing to lie for the Lord, where he was willing to deceive for the church, where he was willing to intentionally state things that were not true in order to cover up the cover-up. The reason I'm doing this first anniversary podcast and returning to the scene of the crime of Professor Peterson's article is twofold. First, I want to let you know what was going on behind the scenes in and around the time that this article and my podcast was released a year ago. Second, I want to point out that Professor Peterson at the time, when called on the carpet and exposed for this intentional misstatement of fact on his part, promised that he would get around to answering why it is that this was not a lie, but that he would do it in his own good time. He wasn't going to be pushed into it by anybody, no, but he would get around to it. Well, it has been a year now since this occurred and since Daniel C. Peterson promised that he would provide an answer to how it is that this was not a lie on his part. And yet all we have heard in the intervening 365 days is crickets. Daniel C. Peterson has not provided a response, which means that Daniel C. Peterson has now added a second deception to the first. The first deception was when he said that there had been no suppression of the 1832 First Vision account. And the second deception was saying that he would answer why it was that that was not a lie. And the fact that Daniel C. Peterson has not seen fit to explain in a full year why it is that he was not lying when he said there has been no suppression regarding the First Vision accounts is why I have labeled him the artful Dodger of Mormon apologetics. Now, let's go to some of the fun things that were happening behind the scenes in and around the time that my podcast came out. Now, as I said, my podcast came out on June 8th, 2018. But two days before my podcast came out, Bill Reel, the producer of Radio Free Mormon, posted a promotional blurb on his Facebook page. He said that Radio Free Mormon would be coming out in two days' time with an episode dealing with Daniel C. Peterson and calling him out for his deception. And it was at that point, two days before my podcast was even published, that The apologists came out of the woodwork to defend their idol, Professor Peterson. There is a certain cadre of apologists who are made in the image and likeness of Daniel C. Peterson. He is their golden calf who must be defended at all costs. It sometimes seems they are more concerned about criticisms of the pantheon of Peterson than they are of the church itself. And this is what was on display in the comment section of Bill Reel's Facebook page once he posted the promotional blurb to my upcoming podcast. The primary two apologists who came wading into Bill Reel's Facebook page to defend Daniel C. Peterson's honor were Stephen Smoot and Neil Rappeleye. These are two of the apologists in charge of the website Book of Mormon Central. In short, the comments section went absolutely crazy, racking up over 200 comments by the night of June 6, 2018. Daniel C. Peterson himself even dropped by the Facebook page to post a word of encouragement to his defenders. But true to form, the apologists did not want to deal with the actual issue. Instead, they offered a number of distractions. Now, this is a very common tactic for Mormon apologetics. When they come upon an issue that is a thorny one and an issue which they would rather not talk about, they will instead try to talk about anything and everything other than the issue itself. And here we find a number of excellent examples of this tactic. Stephen Smoot accused Bill Reel of doing his podcast for the money. He actually accused him of priestcraft. Yes, he used the priestcraft word. Of course, Bill isn't the one with $32 billion in the stock market. That would be um, the LDS Church. And Bill Real isn't a professor at BYU like Daniel Peterson. So Bill's paycheck isn't signed by the LDS Church. Nevertheless, Stephen Smoot accuses Bill of priestcraft. I guess it's okay to get money for talking about the LDS church as long as you are saying only nice things. And that's another tactic on display here called a double standard. It's okay to get money for talking about the LDS church as long as you're saying nice things. It's only when you're saying not-so-nice things about the LDS church that it's wrong to get money for it. But seriously, whether Bill gets nothing for his podcast or whether he gets a million dollars for his podcast is not only a distraction, it's not only a double standard, it's also an ad hominem attack. It is a way of attacking the person making the argument instead of attacking the argument itself. Now an ad hominem is a logical fallacy and the reason it's a logical fallacy is because it doesn't make any difference. How much Bill makes, how much Bill makes has nothing to do with the merits of his position. And the same thing is true for the other side. It doesn't make any difference that Daniel C. Peterson works for the LDS Church or how much he makes working for the LDS Church, whether he makes nothing for his apologetic efforts, whether he makes a million dollars for his apologetic efforts. It has nothing to do with the merits of the issue. And the issue is whether Daniel C. Peterson Lied when he said there's been no suppression about the First Vision accounts. Now, my impression from the comments section is that both Stephen Smoot and Neil Rapoli came across as cocksure and arrogant. They are completely certain of their position, that the LDS Church is true, and that they could wipe the floor with Bill Reel in a debate on the issues. So, Bill did what he does every time apologists come onto his Facebook page and start insulting him. He invites them on his program to talk. And the apologists do what they always do. They start making excuses as to why they won't come on Bill's podcast. I am serious. If they really thought they could wipe the floor with Bill, they would be begging to get on his podcast. But instead, they run the other way. Brave Sir Robin ran away. They give the excuse that they are too busy doing other things like attending academic conferences, or they say that if they went on Bill's podcast, it would be giving Bill publicity, or if they went on Bill's podcast, it would somehow be lending him legitimacy. Yes, they have quite an inflated opinion of themselves. The simple appearance of them on Bill Reel's podcast would give Bill Reel's podcast legitimacy, or they try to set a condition they know Bill will not meet. Stephen Smoot did this by saying he would appear on Bill's podcast if Bill donated his earnings for a year to Stephen Smoot's podcast. Yes, he actually said that. Now, why not just ask for a pound of Bill's flesh from the general area of his heart? But Bill called his bluff. And said Bill makes nothing from his podcast, so if he were to donate what he earns in a year from his podcast to Stephen Smoot's podcast, well, that would be the total sum of nothing. But instead of donating nothing, Bill would donate a dollar to Smoot's podcast, which is actually more than what Bill makes a year from his podcast. He said he would donate a dollar to Stephen Smoot's podcast, which he did and posted a photo of his dollar donation through PayPal to Steven Smoot's podcast. By that time, Stephen Smoot was fleeing the scene, but a friend of Smoot's, who was still participating in the comment section, said he would pass the message on to Smoot that his condition had been met, and that Smoot was now honor-bound to appear on Bill's podcast. Nothing has been heard from Stephen Smoot since. So, in short, Stephen Smoot sets a condition on which he will agree to appear on Bill's podcast, Bill met the condition, and Stephen Smoot welched on the deal. Now, there may be no honor among thieves, but it seems the same could be said for certain Mormon apologists. And continuing with the subject of Stephen Smoot, he made his closing post in this battle of words and tumult of opinions in a most unusual, though typically apologetic, manner. Here's what he wrote in his closing post on Bill Reel's Facebook page. Well, kids, it's been fun, but I have big boy stuff to do tomorrow, like drive six hours to an academic conference. And there Stephen Smoot puts an asterisk next to academic conference. And at the bottom of his post, he says, academic conferences are these things where people who don't rot their brains on Bill Reel's podcasts go to do actual scholarship and engage in critical thinking. Stephen Smoot goes on in his comment, I'm very pleased that my trolling has prompted this conversation. If nothing else, it has proven to me why I hope to God that I never become an ex-Mormon. So long, everyone, Stephen Smoot concludes. So long, everyone. Just remember to clean up after your tapir Bukake which you still haven't proven to me you don't engage in frequently. Well, evidently, Stephen Smoot's recently awarded doctorate in Egyptology is going to his head. In this one post, he gets in how busy he is, how smart he is, how stupid everyone is who listens to Bill Reel's podcasts and even throws in the Japanese expression, bukake. Now, what on earth is bukake? I am not going to go into it here because this is a family show. And believe it or not, this podcast actually does have some standards. They may not be high, but they are there nonetheless. If you don't know what bukake means, and if you want to look it up, that's your business. But here is how you spell it. B-U-K-K-A-K-E. Just make sure your computer filters are set on high safety. What I don't understand is how a faithful member of the LDS Church is not only familiar with this term but is apparently willing to throw it around in a public setting. Anyway, if you want to see Stephen Smoot's comments for yourself, you can go to Bill's Facebook page, scroll back a year, and look for yourself. But you will have a hard time finding Stephen Smoot's comments. Because after he posted a number of injudicious comments, this was just one example, by the way, and after his parting shot, which I just got done quoting, Smoot went back and effectively deleted them all from Bill's Facebook page. You see, I went to sleep on Wednesday night, and there were over 200 comments on Bill's Facebook page where he was promoting my upcoming podcast. When I woke up, there were only 100 comments. While I had slept... Almost a hundred comments had been deleted from Bill Reel's Facebook page. Stephen Smoot went back and deleted the entire sub-thread in which he was holding forth, and his deletion did not go unnoticed by me or other members of the thread. And fortunately, at least one commenter did a screen grab and saved it all for posterity. But you can still see the Bukkake comment in all its glory because it was reposted after Smoot had left the building. So that's what was going on between the time Bill Reel posted the promo of my podcast on June 6th and the actual publication of my podcast 2 days later on June 8th, 2018. But the fun wasn't over yet because after I posted my podcast on June 8th, 2018, Daniel Peterson himself posted a response Now, his response was posted two days later on June 10th, 2018, and his response was not posted in the Deseret News. No, instead, he posted it on his own personal blog at Patheos. His blog is titled Sic Et Non, that's S-I-C-E-T-N-O-N, which I am given to understand is medieval Latin for yes and no. It is apparently important to Daniel Peterson that his readers understand that he knows elementary Latin. And calling this blog by Daniel Peterson a response to my podcast is probably too big a word. Here it is in its entirety. The title of this blog post on June 10th, 2018 is A Bit More on the Variant Accounts of the First Vision. He begins by saying, one of my many great treats afforded by the recent tour of Egypt that my wife and I accompanied was having Steve Smoot and Steve Densley among the group. Some of you, he goes on, will be interested in an interview with Stephen Smoot by Tariq LaCour that has just appeared. Yes, this is the same Stephen Smoot who posted the Bukake comment on Bill Reel's Facebook page and has thereby earned the sobriquet of Stephen Bukake Smoot. It's important that Daniel C. Peterson throw Stephen Smoot a bone for his loyal service. So he posts a link to this interview of Stephen Smoot. On his blog post. Daniel C. Peterson finally gets to the point. I published a column regarding the first vision a couple of weeks ago, and then he provides a link to his May 31st, 2018 Deseret News article. Daniel C. Peterson goes on. That column has received a remarkably harsh and angry response in certain quarters. Plainly, I touched a nerve. That's Daniel C. Peterson. Plainly, I touched a nerve. Several critics have vocally claimed not only that I was wrong, but that I was being deliberately deceitful. Okay, that's me, Radio Free Mormon. I'm the one who said he was being deliberately deceitful. I set forth my reasons in my podcast as to why I believe that, and Daniel C. Peterson is going to do everything he possibly can in order to avoid addressing why it is that I thought he was deceitful and explaining how it is that he was not being deceitful when he made those statements. Daniel Peterson goes on, I am, it said, being justly demolished for my lies. Now, as it happens, I'm back in Virginia right now spending time with family, including my toddler granddaughter. This is where Daniel C. Peterson starts talking about how busy, busy, dreadfully busy he is and he has no time available to respond to this unjust accusation made by yours truly. This has entailed, Daniel C. Peterson says, this has entailed a number of activities ranging from shoveling mulch through visiting a farmer's market to walking baby and dogs. So you can see why it is that Daniel C. Peterson has been much too busy to respond to my allegation that he was lying through his teeth when he said there's been no suppression regarding the First Vision accounts. He's been walking the baby and dogs. I haven't been paying much attention to the responses, he says, which apparently include at least one and possibly two podcasts. Well, he knows that it includes at least one podcast and he knows what I say in it because he came by and visited the comment section on Bill Reel's Facebook page when Bill Reel was talking about my upcoming podcast. Are we really to believe that Daniel Peterson, upon finding out that a Radio Free Mormon podcast would be upcoming in two days, that would not only accuse him of lying, but show exactly where he lied in a recent publication of the Deseret News, that Daniel Peterson did not listen to the podcast itself? Come now. And are we really to believe that Daniel Peterson didn't look at the comments section of the Deseret News article that he himself wrote where several readers called him out on his mendacity in this regard? Or, quite frankly, that he didn't know he was lying when he wrote the lie in his article? All of this beggars belief. Not only that, I don't know about you, but if someone had publicly accused me of lying and then said exactly where it was that I was lying, I wouldn't wait around for a year to get around to responding to explain why it was that I wasn't lying if, indeed, I wasn't lying. This is simply a tactic on Daniel Peterson's part. He is compounding his first lie with additional deceptions. But isn't this what Sir Walter Scott taught us when he said, Oh, what a tangled web we weave when first we practice to deceive. So here, Daniel Peterson is simply playing coy. I haven't been paying much attention to the responses, which apparently include at least one and possibly two podcasts. When and if I do pay serious attention, Daniel C. Peterson assures us, when and if I do pay serious attention, I'll probably respond in some fashion or other. In the meantime, I plead innocent to the charge of being a deliberate liar. Why do certain types of critics immediately resort, quite commonly from the safe retreat of anonymity, to the harshest possible construal of such disagreements? I'm pretty confident that nobody out there will actually be able to prove me a liar, since simply, I'm not a liar, and I wasn't lying. Okay, so Daniel C. Peterson, why don't you just explain it to us, since obviously, we're too dumb to get it. And by the way, isn't this kind of what all liars say, I'm not a liar, and I wasn't lying? And surely, Daniel Peterson goes on, and surely there are other options. Maybe I'm just stupid, for example, or incompetent, or ignorant, or blind. No, Daniel Peterson, I'm actually paying you a compliment. I'm not saying you're stupid. I'm not saying you're incompetent. I'm not saying you're ignorant. I'm not saying you're blind. I'm just saying you lied. Moreover, Peterson goes on, moreover, I point out, A, that the article in question is less than 740 words long and that, B, it was never intended as my last word on the topic, nor is an exhaustive treatment of the issues that have been raised with regard to the first vision. So here's where Daniel Peterson starts blaming the shortness of the article for why it is that he lied. And his space limitations will become a light motif of further answers that he gives in this regard. In other words, Daniel Peterson says, I stand by it. Okay, so Daniel C. Peterson first lies Then he's caught in his lie, and now he's going to double down and stand by his lie. In other words, he says, I stand by it. Is there more to be said, he asks. Yes, of course. And sooner or later, I'm likely to say it. Well, sooner or later apparently does not mean an entire year. It has been a whole year since Daniel C. Peterson said this, and nothing has come forth from his pen, to my knowledge, that answers the question, of how it is that he wasn't lying when he said there's been no suppression about the first vision accounts. He goes on, there are only so many things that can be covered though in individual instantiations of a column that invariably runs between 736 and 739 words. See, there it is again. The problem with this argument is that it actually takes fewer words to not lie than it does to lie. If he had taken the lies out of his original article for the Deseret News, it would have taken words away from it. It would not have increased the length of the article. If you take out the lies, the article is shorter, not longer. So it is hard to see how this is a meaningful defense on his part. Of course, he goes on, I also received some positive responses to the column. The consensus that I'm a mendacious and toxic hack has never been quite unanimous. Now this is another tactic that Professor Peterson regularly engages in. If somebody disagrees with him or calls him out as I did for a misstatement on his part, he pretends that he's being victimized by being called horrible and atrocious names. And he takes those names and sets them forth as if that is what the other person called him. Here he says, the consensus that I'm a mendacious and toxic hack has never quite been unanimous. So this is kind of a reverse ad hominem argument. I'm not calling him a name here, well, except for liar, which he manifestly is. I'm not calling him <laughs> I'm not calling him a mendacious and toxic hack. He's calling himself that and pretending that I called him that. So in a sense, it's not only a reverse ad hominem, it's also a straw man argument. He's putting words in my mouth that I never used to call him names that I never called him. It's like a combination between an ad hominem and a straw man. It's an ad strominem. Going on about some of the positive responses to the column that he received, he says, One of them came via email from my longtime colleague, Kent Jackson, recently retired from Brigham Young University. Here is what he wrote. So here he quotes from Kent Jackson. Believe it or not, this will be important, the fact that he's quoting from Kent Jackson later. But here is what he quotes from Kent Jackson. I started teaching the Pearl of Great Price in the mid-80s. By actual account, I taught 59 sections. If we estimate 40 students in each, I taught 2,360 students. In every class, the students were required to read the four accounts of the first vision. And we spent three days talking about the accounts and what we learned from them. Never once did a student raise a concern about differences, though we discussed them openly. Okay, can you imagine that? It's a huge class, it's packed with TBMs. Can you imagine a student raising their hand and mentioning a concern that they might have about differences in the first vision accounts? Well, apparently, according to Kent Jackson, that never happened. Odd that. You are right, Kent Jackson goes on. You are right. This scandal is one of the most artificial complaints possible. Daniel C. Peterson then says When I replied, asking whether I could quote him on my blog, Professor Jackson answered as follows. Now, once again, he quotes from Kent Jackson, and this is where he quotes him too much. He gives too much information, because here, the cat gets let out of the bag. That not only does Professor Kent Jackson know about Joseph Fielding Smith hiding the 1832 account of the First Vision, in other words, suppressing it, but so, by inference, does Daniel C. Peterson. Here's the quote from Professor Jackson, once again, in the sick et non, blog post from June 10th, 2018. Sure, of course, exclamation point, Kent Jackson responds. Also, he says, I included the four accounts in my 1996 book, From Apostasy to Restoration, which has sold over 13,000 copies. If we were supposed to keep them under wraps, why didn't anyone tell me? And now for the quote from Kent Jackson that gives it away. By the way, even if it's true that Joseph Fielding Smith didn't want to make the 1832 account public, that ended in the 1960s, which was over half a century ago. See, Kent Jackson knows, and so does Daniel Peterson, because you'll notice that at no point does Daniel C. Peterson say, wait, stop the presses. What are you talking about? Joseph Fielding Smith didn't want to make the 1832 account public? No, Daniel C. Peterson is well aware of this. Once again, the quote from Kent Jackson quoted by Daniel Peterson. By the way, even if it's true that Joseph Fielding Smith didn't want to make the 1832 account public, that ended in the 1960s which was over half a century ago, exclamation point. That's ancient history. That's what Kent Jackson calls it. That's ancient history. 50 years ago is ancient history for Kent Jackson. No, I beg to differ with you, Kent Jackson. Ancient history is the building of the pyramids. Ancient history is the hanging gardens of Babylon. Ancient history is the colossus of Rhodes. Ancient history is not something that happened in my lifetime and also that happened within the lifetime of Kent Jackson, Daniel Peterson, and the top 15 leaders of the LDS Church. This is what we call recent history, not ancient history. And more importantly, Professor Kent Jackson thereby gives the lie to Professor Daniel Peterson, because Daniel Peterson has said there has been no suppression. Kent Jackson says, well, there may have been suppression. But that was ancient history. That was over 50 years ago. That doesn't count. The problem is, is that once there's suppression of the First Vision accounts, as there has been, nobody after that, no matter how long after that, can ever honestly say, there was no suppression, because there was. Going on with this quote from Kent Jackson, that's ancient history. Paul Chessman, BYU religion professor, well he was actually a student at the time, BYU religion professor analyzed the accounts in his 1965 master's thesis at BYU. Then Dean Jesse published them in 1969. Yeah, he says, keeping it under wraps. That was Kent Jackson's comment. Yeah, keeping it under wraps. Well, we haven't been keeping it under wraps since we stopped keeping it under wraps, is really what he means. And Professor Peterson concludes his blog by stating, it was posted from Richmond Virginia. Professor Peterson has a habit of wanting to make sure his readers know how well-traveled he is by posting his blogs from the different locations that he is currently visiting when he's writing them. This one was posted from Richmond, Virginia. So now a few comments about this blog post and this quote from Kent Jackson. First note that Kent Jackson says Paul Chessman analyzed the accounts in his 1965 master's thesis at BYU. That is not accurate. Paul Chessman did not analyze the accounts, at least not the 1832 account, even though he gets credit for finding it. So let's talk a little bit about Paul Chessman, the BYU student who in 1965 was doing his master's thesis at BYU and is credited with discovering the 1832 account of the First Vision, Well, the way he discovered it is very interesting indeed and somewhat shrouded in mystery. Nobody discovered it before then because it was in Joseph Fielding Smith's safe. It was immune from discovery. And that was the whole point. Remember suppression? But by 1965, word of this account had leaked to the press, Gerald and Sandra Tanner Calling openly upon Joseph Fielding Smith to release this account, and under this pressure, Joseph Fielding Smith or someone at his direction took those three pages out of Joseph Fielding Smith's safe, taped them back into the letter book, put them back into the library where they could be discovered by somebody doing a master's thesis on first vision accounts, and somehow got brought to Paul Chessman's attention. I have read through Paul Chessman's master's thesis on First Vision accounts. It is available on the internet, but there are a number of interesting points in connection with this master's thesis relating to the 1832 account of the First Vision. The first has to do with Kent Jackson's statement that Paul Chessman, quote, analyzed the accounts in his 1965 master's thesis at BYU. Well, that is not technically accurate. Paul Chessman did not really analyze the 1832 account. He analyzed a lot of other accounts, but the 1832 account received scant attention in his master's thesis even though the thesis itself is 178 pages long. Think about it. If you're Paul Chessman and you are doing your master's thesis on the different accounts of the first vision and you somehow miraculously find the earliest version that has never been published before isn't that going to be the centerpiece of your thesis you actually have something new to contribute to the conversation you've got something that nobody has seen before that's going to be front and center and the rest of your thesis will be built around it but no that is not the case with paul chessman's master's thesis as i say it is 178 pages long now the body of the thesis is 75 pages long. The rest, which is a little over 100 pages more, is simply appendices. In other words, it's different accounts of the first vision, which he has typed out and attached as appendices. The 1832 account, which you would expect to be Appendix A, it would be the most important thing to talk about, is not Appendix A. It's not Appendix B. It's not Appendix C. Instead, it is Appendix D. And this is remarkable, not only because the 1832 account would be the most important account, it is also the earliest account chronologically. And yet it is not Appendix A, B, or C. Instead, it comes in as Appendix D. Now this suggests to me that the thesis was almost completed before the 1832 account, was brought to Paul Chessman's attention. Remember, this is in the days of typewriters. You can't simply copy and paste material into a document that already exists. He would have had to have retyped his entire thesis in order to accommodate the 1832 account as Exhibit A. Instead of doing that, it comes in as Exhibit D. Also, there is an entire section in the master's thesis that deals specifically with the question of whether there was one person or two who appeared to Joseph Smith in his first vision. This section is found on pages 25 through 42. And yet, there is not one mention of the 1832 account here. This is where you would expect it to figure if indeed Paul Chessman knew about the 1832 account prior to commencing his master's thesis, because it is the 1832 account where Joseph Smith mentioned seeing only one person in the first vision, that person being Jesus Christ. It is different from all the later accounts where Joseph Smith says he saw two beings. So it's clear the 1832 account should have been mentioned in this section, which deals with whether one or two beings appeared to Joseph Smith, and yet it is completely absent. Now why do I think that is significant? The reason I think it is significant is because what it suggests is that the 1832 account was not brought to Paul Chessman's attention until he was almost done with his thesis. This does not seem to be a situation where Paul Chessman is going to the library and doing research to find different accounts of the first vision and assemble those all together in order to commence writing his thesis, which is what we would normally expect. No, instead, Paul Chessman is a graduate student at BYU who is already known to be frequenting the library in order to collect these different accounts of the first vision and then... What seems likely is that the 1832 account, freshly liberated from Joseph Fielding Smith's safe, and taped back into Letterbook 1, was then brought to Paul Chessman's attention, specifically because it was known that he was writing this Master's Thesis, and so that he could include this account in his Master's Thesis in a way that would have it entering into the public discourse in a manner that was least likely to show the fingerprints of Joseph Fielding Smith's suppression of the document. Now, Paul Chessman does say one thing about the 1832 account of the First Vision In his master's thesis. It's actually just one sentence and it does not appear until page 63 where he is in the process of introducing the appendices. Under Appendix D, he says this, quote, as he, Joseph Smith, as he writes briefly of the vision, in other words, because he writes briefly of the vision, as he writes briefly of the vision, he does not mention the Father as being present. However, this does not indicate that he was not present, period, end of quote. And yes, that is one sentence because that is a semicolon, not a period. Once again, this is the only mention Paul Chessman makes of the 1832 account. Quote, as he writes briefly of the vision, he does not mention the Father as being present, semicolon. However, this does not indicate that he was not present, period, end of quote. That's it. That is not analyzing the 1832 account, and yet this is what Professor Jackson says is quoted by Daniel Peterson in his June tenth, two 2008 blog post. You'll remember that Professor Jackson says, Paul Chessman analyzed the accounts in his 1965 master's thesis at BYU. Well, this one sentence does not count, in my mind at least, as analyzing the 1832 account of the first vision. And funny that Chessman here should use the same excuse on behalf of Joseph Smith Daniel C. Peterson gives for telling a whopper in his Deseret News article. There is simply not enough space. You'll remember that Daniel Peterson excuses his prevarication by saying his space was limited. Chessman says Joseph Smith didn't mention the father appearing because Joseph, quote, writes briefly of the vision, unquote. So apparently, great minds do think alike. Finally, in his master's thesis, Chessman composes his last appendix, which is Appendix I, and which constitutes a comparison of the different accounts of the first vision on a number of points. But guess which version is missing from his comparison chart. If you guess the 1832 account, you go to the head of the class. So once again, this indicates not only that the 1832 account was brought to Paul Chessman's attention after he had commenced his master's thesis, and probably toward the end of his completion of his master's thesis, but also that Paul Chessman is not too heavily invested in really doing an in-depth analysis or comparison of the 1832 account, and likely because he realized that this was extremely problematic to his otherwise faith-promoting and utterly orthodox master's thesis. So that has been quite a detour, but I did it in order to show that Daniel Peterson's quotation of Kent P. Jackson in his blog post response is in error. Paul Chessman did not analyze the accounts, at least the 1832 account, in his 1965 master's thesis at BYU. And Kent Jackson went on, as you'll recall, to say, then Dean Jesse published them in 1969. Oh, and by the way, the omitted fact by Kent Jackson and Daniel Peterson, is that it was not Dean Jesse who first published the 1832 account of the First Vision. It was Sandra and Gerald Tanner, the anti-Mormons, who first published the 1832 account of the First Vision. This little factoid is omitted entirely. And one other note, Chessman, like Peterson, never deals with the obvious contradiction between the 1832 account And the 1838 account about whether Joseph knew that all churches were wrong before or after he went to the woods to pray. But it is in the comments section to Daniel Peterson's blog of June 10th that things really start heating up. First, a guy named David B. comes in, only his last initial, is given. David B. And at the end of his comment, David B. refers to my podcast and says this to Daniel Peterson, whatever the case, Dan, Radio Free Mormon summarily debunked your brief essay. You would do well to address that episode directly rather than passively dismissively. So it was clear even to David B. that the purpose of this blog post was to respond to my podcast without mentioning my podcast by name or actually dealing with any of the points that I raised in my podcast. In response to David B., a poster named Kiwi57 who is an acolyte and devotee of all things Daniel Peterson responded, David, perhaps you'd like to answer this question. Why is it that the new wave of those who summarily reject the truth claims of the Church of Jesus Christ and obsessively attack it at every opportunity seem to like to claim the title of Mormon for themselves. I think there he's referring to the title of this podcast being Radio Free Mormon. Kiwi57 goes on, Isn't it a fact that the so-called Radio Free Mormon outfit, for which you are such an enthusiastic shill, is actually an atheist operation? Now, of course, whether I use the name Mormon in my title or whether I'm an atheist has nothing to do with whether Daniel C. Peterson is a liar. But this is simply another example of the distraction-slash-ad hominem approach of Mormon apologetics. When they're being pressed on a thorny issue, they will do anything and everything, including the equivalent of chewing their left leg off in order to get out of the coyote trap. David B. responds to this as follows, Hey, Kiwi! I don't know RFM guy's personal faith position exactly, but he has a few episodes discussing it in some detail if you are want to know. Give him a listen. I've really enjoyed his contributions to this point. I'd agree with him in that the article put out by Dr. Peterson is a pretty bad one. If you start with his latest episode, which is in response to Dr. Peterson's Des News article under discussion, get ready. It's not an easy listen if you are one prone to defensiveness, as I realize you quite often are. Kiwi57 responds, actually, I don't know if malignant narcissism qualifies as a faith position exactly, but I suppose it has some elements of worship in it. So once again, the ad hominems, now I'm a malignant narcissist, well, Kiwi57 isn't the first person to call me that. I'm afraid he's going to have to take a number and get in line. Right behind my ex-wife. Kiwi57 goes on. I don't have a lot of time to listen to people talk. So you see, it's because it's a podcast that he really doesn't have time to listen to it. This comes up over and over again, doesn't it? Just not enough time, dang it. I don't have a lot of time to listen to people talk. I prefer to read transcripts. And to anticipate, your argument apparently, and to anticipate, no, it's not because I'm afraid or something of what I might hear. I don't even listen to the Interpreter podcast that Dan frequently announces, so I'm an equal opportunity podcast ignorer. But apart from that, if RFM guy thinks his arguments are so brilliant, then they ought to be able to withstand the scrutiny that cold print facilitates rather better than an audio monologue does. So now it's not just because he doesn't have time to listen to the podcast. He actually doesn't prefer listening. He'd rather it be written so he can read it. So now it's the format. It's the format in which I'm calling Daniel Peterson a liar that he cannot listen to. If I'd written it out, he would read it, but it's not written, so sorry. Kiwi57 then responds to David's comment, I'd agree with him in that the article put out by Dr. Peterson is a pretty bad one. So Kiwi57 says, so what are his arguments against it? Is there anything other than sniping about details that Dan didn't have space to include in an article with a 740 word limit? Once again, there's that argument. Note Kiwi57, here's the deal. It takes less space to lie. If you take out the lies, it takes fewer words. Including the lies actually increases the length of the article. In response to this comment, David B. says, maybe I have piqued your interest enough to go listen. I mean, it doesn't matter. In my mind, the points he raised ought to be addressed by Dr. Peterson, but go ahead, give it a listen. I'd be interested in your thoughts too. And Kiwi57 responds, no, I've told you that I'm not going to listen to a podcast. It's a very time inefficient way of getting information. And then Daniel Peterson comes into the fray and Daniel Peterson responds to David's comment when he said, I'd agree with him in that the article put out by Dr. Peterson is a pretty bad one. To which Daniel Peterson says, hmm, I haven't listened to his analysis yet, but I'm betting that I'm going to disagree, which is usually the way most professors enter into a discussion is by judging something before they've heard it. But then, and this is where it really starts to get good, who should make an appearance but Bill Reel. This is in the comments section of the June 10th blog by Daniel Peterson in which he gives his response, non-response, to my podcast. Here is what Bill Reel says. Daniel, your credibility is in question because people can sense your deflection and dismissal and deceptiveness when shielding people from grasping the full and often problematic narrative. For example, you say, and here he quotes the real problematic statement from Daniel Peterson's Deseret News article. For example, you say, quote, there's been no scandal, no suppression, and the often exaggerated if not altogether invented discrepancies between them have been thoroughly examined, unquote. Bill Reel goes on. Then Radio Free Mormon does an episode detailing your obfuscation in the Deseret News May 31st article including claiming you lied when you said no suppression. His point is, you know the history of the 1832 account being cut out. You know that Joseph Fielding Smith spoke to other GAs, Stan Larson's article in Dialogue. Yet you seemingly come across very uncomfortable letting the reader know the history, and you're absolutely foolish expressing certainty, no suppression, when the data makes suppression look like an absolutely valid conclusion. Then, when called on it, you finish your recent revisit, with, quote, by the way, even if it's true that Joseph Fielding Smith didn't want to make the 1832 account public, that ended in the 1960s, which was over a half century ago. That's ancient history. So here, Bill Real quotes from Daniel Peterson's June 10th blog, where Daniel Peterson is quoting Kent Jackson. And then Bill Real says, strange thing is to refute the argument that you're a liar. You would need to claim ignorance of Larson's article and the data in it or show evidence proving the suppression is an invalid conclusion. So here Bill is saying there's only two ways to get out of this jam that you put yourself in Professor Peterson by saying there's no suppression. Either you were unaware of it and you did not know that there had been a suppression, which means that you are unaware of Stan Larson's dialogue article and the data that is in it, or you have to show how saying that it wasn't suppressed is actually true, which it's not. The problem that Daniel Peterson has dug himself into was quoting Kent Jackson, where Kent Jackson acknowledges Joseph Fielding Smith's suppression of the 1832 account. So Daniel Peterson has effectively foreclosed the defense of ignorance and he's left with explaining why it is that it's not a lie when he said there was no suppression. Once again, back to Bill Reel. Strange thing is to refute the argument that you're a liar, you would need to claim ignorance of Larson's article and the data in it or show evidence proving the suppression is an invalid conclusion. Instead, you acknowledge that the suppression may have actually occurred, which makes your certainty there wasn't a suppression, well, a lie meant to help your readers feel safe, but which is deceptive and dishonest regarding the data and the valid conclusions that could be drawn. Bill Reel goes on, he is not about to let Daniel off the hook, sad that you would be dishonest in order to build a false faith in others, and to keep people comfortable, when these issues deserve forthrightness and encouragement for people to grasp that such is messy." And hence, we should be careful when judging those who have serious doubts over such things. In fact, Daniel, even starting this article with a quote, I haven't been paying much attention to the responses, which apparently include at least one and possibly two podcasts. When and if I do pay serious attention, I'll probably respond in some fashion or other. That's how Daniel Peterson started his blog post, if you'll recall. Starting your article with that quote is deceptive, seeing as you participated in the social media thread on Bill Reel's Facebook page, in the social media thread that discussed this episode being available. You often know way more than you want your reader to think you know, and such is dishonest when giving some data that lends credence to one conclusion while intentionally holding back full transparency knowing the rest of the data hurts the conclusion you're pushing. I would call for you to be more honest. You're better than that. Bill Reel concludes, on a hopeful note. But now Daniel Peterson responds to Bill Reel, and they get into it. Daniel Peterson responds to Bill Real by doing another of his favorite tactics, which is instead of addressing the actual issue, he breaks down what Bill Real says into individual sentences, clauses, and even words, and spends his time responding to those in a very clever and witty and sophisticated fashion, all the time studiously avoiding the point. Daniel Peterson quotes Bill Real, Your credibility is in question. Daniel Peterson responds, I've never had any credibility with most of your current friends, so there's nothing earth-shattering in that. He quotes Bill Real saying, people can sense your deflection and dismissal and deceptiveness. Daniel Peterson responds, only people predisposed to think me a liar will leap immediately to sensing my deceptiveness. Notice how he avoids the issue. He quotes Bill Real as saying, You're absolutely foolish. Daniel Peterson responds, And you're absolutely charming. He quotes Bill Real as saying, You finish your recent revisit with, By the way, even if it's true that Joseph Fielding Smith didn't want to make the 1832 account public, that ended in the 1960s, which was over half a century ago. That's ancient history. Bill Real is focusing in like a laser beam on the real issue here, which is where Daniel Peterson approvingly quotes Ken Jackson in his blog article, Admitting to Knowledge about Joseph Fielding Smith hiding the 1832 account. But instead of dealing with the issue, Daniel Peterson wants to trip Bill Real up by the fact that it was not Daniel Peterson who actually said this, it was Daniel Peterson quoting Kent Jackson. But instead of coming out and saying that and explaining why it makes a difference, which I don't think it does, Daniel Peterson responds, Kent Jackson isn't one of my pen names. He's an actual person. This kind of diversionary tactic is going to continue on throughout this exchange. And it is why when I originally read the quote from Kent Jackson in Dan Peterson's blog article, I took a special pains to point out that Daniel Peterson was quoting Kent Jackson and they are not Daniel Peterson's own words. However, Daniel Peterson adopts them as his in a sense by quoting them approvingly and not registering any surprise at what Kent Jackson says about the suppression of the First Vision account by Joseph Fielding Smith. So when Bill Reel says, you finish your recent revisit, and then quotes the Kent Jackson comment, Daniel Peterson responds, Kent Jackson isn't one of my pen names, he's an actual person. He goes on to quote Bill Real, saying, deceptive and dishonest. You see, this isn't even an entire paragraph. Instead, Daniel Peterson is going to respond to the negative things that Bill Real says about him in order for Daniel Peterson to play the victim. Daniel Peterson says, and you wonder why normal, decent, believing Latter-day Saints seldom, if ever, accept invitations to go on your show. No, Daniel Peterson, I'll just tell you right now. The reason that normal, decent, believing Latter-day Saints seldom, if ever, accept invitations to go on Bill's show is because they know that Bill Reel is the one who would mop the floor with them. And actually, many normal, decent, believing Latter-day Saints have gone on Bill Reel's podcast and have been treated respectfully and courteously. It is only the Mormon apologists such as Daniel Peterson, Stephen Smoot, and Neil Rapalai who are not confident in the strength of their position that are afraid to go on Bill Reel's podcast because they know he will not let them get away with their lies, distortions, and half-truths. Next, Daniel Peterson quotes one word from Bill Reel, dishonest. To which Daniel Peterson responds, as winsome as ever. He quotes Bill Real as saying, We should be careful when judging those who have serious doubts over such things. And Daniel Peterson responds, Oh, I can plainly see how very reluctant you are to judge others. He quotes another word from Bill Real saying, Deceptive, to which Daniel Peterson responds, you seem to think that you need to repeat such words a lot so that I won't miss them. He quotes Bill Reel as saying, You often know way more than you want your readers to think you know, and such is dishonest. To which Daniel Peterson responds, You don't know what you're talking about, but plainly that doesn't hinder you in your very non-judgmental rush to judgment. He quotes Bill Real as saying, intentionally holding back full transparency, knowing the rest of the data hurts the conclusion you're pushing. And Daniel Peterson responds, again, I point out that you really don't know whereof you speak. Finally, he quotes Bill Real as saying, I would call for you to be more honest, to which Daniel Peterson says, very thoughtful and kind of you. You see, this is the type of response that Daniel Peterson is famous for giving. It is a non-response response instead of dealing with the actual issue raised by Bill, which is that not only has Daniel Peterson written a Deseret News article in which he has apparently lied when stating there has been no suppression of the first vision accounts, he will break down what Bill Reel said, pick and choose different sentences and even different words to respond to without ever actually dealing with the issue itself. So Bill Real, sensing that this is what Daniel Peterson is about and with the tenacity and determination of a bulldog, Bill Real tries another tack. Bill Real responds, let me try it this way. You stated there was no suppression, but then indicate at the end that there may have been a suppression. But who cares? It is ancient history. Do you now concede that it was inappropriate to declare and impose there was no suppression with complete certainty to your readership? And suppression has nothing to do with motives, by the way. Then Bill Real quotes a dictionary definition of suppress which means to withhold from disclosure or publication, such as truth, evidence, a book, names, etc. Bill Reel goes on, Also, can you concede the data makes the conclusion that the 1832 account was intentionally obscured from the public by at least one top leader as a valid conclusion to make from the data? And hence for you to impose that the reader can be 100% confident that there was no suppression is a leap and one unjustified by the data in terms of your certainty. Can you acknowledge your statement was wrong for at least these two reasons? Well, of course, Daniel Peterson is not able to acknowledge that anything he has said is wrong. He does reply, but once again, instead of dealing with the issue, he wants to focus in on the fact that Bill Real is apparently attributing to Dan Peterson a quote that Dan Peterson made of Kent Jackson. This is Daniel Peterson's response. As I've indicated, I'm not Kent Jackson. I don't use Kent Jackson as a pen name. Kent Jackson is a real person and entirely distinct from me. I will respond when I respond, and it won't be in the comments section here. So instead of dealing with the issue, Daniel Peterson is playing a game, a word game, with Bill Real, in which he is trying to make fun of Bill Real for quoting Kent Jackson and apparently attributing that quote to Daniel Peterson, even though Daniel Peterson quoted it approvingly and thereby tacitly adopts what Kent Jackson says as representing Daniel Peterson's own position. Bill Reel responds, I never brought up Kent Jackson. I am simply asking if you were inaccurate for multiple reasons I have stated in declaring with certainty that there was no suppression. Is that not an untruth, or at least not defendable as a certainty? Were your readers misled by your article? So Bill Reel continues to hone in like a laser beam on the actual issue here and dan peterson continues to avoid the issue at all costs now kiwi 57 jumps in and tag teams with daniel peterson against bill real and kiwi 57 once again brings up this trope this word game about kent jackson not being daniel peterson as if that's somehow supposed to be a substantive response to bill real's question kiwi 57 joins the fray and says, you've twice quoted Kent Jackson's words and attributed them to Dan. Kent's words are explicitly quoted by Dan as coming from Kent and are even set off in a bold typeface. That wasn't real smart, Bill. Yes, pun apparently intended by Kiwi57. And he goes on, and I never cease to be amazed by how anti-Mormons like yourself love to work leaders into every attack. You wouldn't be trying to sow discord among brethren, Proverbs 619, by any chance, would you? So Kiwi57 is going to be about as helpful as addressing the issue as Dan Peterson. What Kiwi57 is doing is giving Dan Peterson cover for not addressing the issue that Bill Real is raising. In the comment section of Dan Peterson's own blog post, Bill Real responds to Kiwi57, Would you mind showing me where the words Kent Jackson show up in the original article where Dan says, no suppression, or are we saying he plagiarized him without giving credit? Now, Bill Real is making a distinction between Dan Peterson's original Deseret News article from May 31st, 2018, in which no quote from Kent Jackson appears, as opposed to Dan Peterson's blog article at Sick at Non on June 10th, 2018, in which Dan Peterson quotes Kent Jackson. And as I say, all of these comments occur in the comment section of the blog article from June 10th 2018 Bill Reel goes on the issue is not with Dan's blog post here but instead his original article where Dan himself says no suppression. Kiwi 57, once again devoted to the cause of never dealing with the cause, says Kent Jackson is the author of the following words, quote, by the way, even if it's true that Joseph Fielding Smith didn't want to make the 1832 account public, that ended in the 1960s, which was over half a century ago. That's ancient history. Kiwi 57 goes on, Dan quoted those words in the blog article to which you are responding. You quoted those same words and attributed them to Dan. You could have admitted that you just got it wrong. Oh my gosh, okay, this this is crazy. Kiwi57 is saying to Bill Real, you could have admitted that you just got it wrong. Well, what about Dan Peterson? Apparently, Dan Peterson is not able to admit that when he said no suppression in his Deseret News article, he's the one who just got it wrong. And this is what started this entire back and forth between Bill Real and Dan Peterson, and now with Kiwi57 thrown in, just to make it interesting. Once again, Kiwi57 says to Bill Real, you could have admitted that you just got it wrong. But you showed what you think honesty looks like when you doubled down on it. Funny that. It is amazing that Kiwi57 can so focus in on Bill Real, apparently misattributing Kent Jackson's words to Dan Peterson, but he is completely blind to to what he is enabling Daniel Peterson to do, which is to get away with not simply admitting he just got it wrong. Dan Peterson now jumps in to say, you've been responding to my posts here, Bill Real, even quoting them. And Bill Real says, yes, I am responding to your original article that you misled your audience, and I believe demonstrably intentional. By quoting your May 31st Deseret News article where you personally state, quote, no suppression, unquote. And then argue, using this blog post, that you're deflecting and actually acknowledging you misled by stating in this post that such a suppression may have actually occurred, but that such is ancient history. Bill continues, and while the second part is your sharing Kent Jackson, you see, Bill Real understands, at least by this point, that Dan Peterson is quoting Kent Jackson in his blog post. Bill says, and while the second part, i.e. the blog post, is your sharing Kent Jackson, your sharing it still adds weight to you now recognizing that there may very well have been a suppression, meaning your no suppression was misleading. It proves the point the same. Are you still certain there was no suppression, and is that honest with your readers? Bill Reel should have been an attorney because his cross-examination of the hostile witness Dan Peterson and Kiwi57 is excellent he refuses to allow him to continue to divert to other extraneous issues and keeps him on focus on the task at hand to which now dan peterson has to say i was honest with my readers bill real i'm not a liar which is daniel peterson's equivalent of saying i am not a crook he says i was honest with my readers i'm not a liar however daniel peterson while proclaiming his innocence is not going to tell us how it is that he was honest when he said no suppression he is not going to tell us how it is that he is not a liar or a deceiver he says i was honest with my readers bill real i'm not a liar i'm not a deceiver but you're manifestly something of a bore so it's okay for dan peterson to lie but when bill real catches him in his lie and refuses to allow him to divert attention away from his lie then it's bill real who is the bore Dan Peterson goes on, I'll respond to these recent attacks on me and my character when I choose and when it's convenient for me to do so. As I've said several times to you. So now Dan Peterson is going to throw out and continue to throw out this repeated trope of he's not a liar, he's not a deceiver, but he's not going to explain it now and he's not going to explain why not to Bill Real. He'll explain it when he gets around to it, when he's not so dreadfully busy. Of course the thought does cross one's mind that in all the time that he's been going back and forth with bill real in the comments section he could have easily had the time instead of arguing about kent jackson and whether those are his words or not he could simply have taken the time and space to address the issue but this is obviously not what dan peterson wants to do this is the last thing in the world that dan peterson wants to do and in the face of bill reels grilling cross-examination he is going to have to fall back on this position again and again. I'm not going to answer it just because you're asking for it. I'll get around to it when I want to. Well, as I say, I knew when I read this that Daniel Peterson was never going to get around to it. His simply saying, I'll get around to it when I want to and when it's convenient to me, was simply another tactic in the Mormon apologist's quiver. That when you are absolutely caught making a deceptive statement, that is a lie and that you obviously know is not true and that you knew was not true when you said it and you make that statement in writing and when you make that statement in a publication of records such as the Deseret News. You don't admit you were wrong. You don't admit you were in error and God forbid you don't admit that you were trying to deceive people. Instead, you say, I'll get around to answering that. When I want to get around to answering that hoping that in the meantime entire generations of people will die and you will never be held to account to actually answer the question well Dan Peterson radio free Mormon is not dead nor doth he sleep and I'm holding you to account it has been one full year since you made this statement since you made this lie and you have not yet to my knowledge ever come forward and answered how it is that this is not a lie that you were not trying to deceive your readers. Am I really to believe that in a year's time you did not have the opportunity or ability to do that? For heaven's sake, you had the opportunity and the ability to do it a year ago when you're going back and forth with Bill Reel in the comments section of your own blog post. And these comments in the back and forth between Bill Reel and Daniel Peterson in his blog post comments section continues, but it gets repetitive. Bill Reel keeps holding his feet to the fire. Dan Peterson keeps saying, I'm not going to respond now. I'm not going to respond here. I'll do it when I feel like it. And that's not now. And that's not here. Bill Reel is just trying to get a straight answer from Daniel Peterson. And Daniel Peterson is going around and around talking about anything and everything he can possibly think of in order to avoid answering the question. But it gets even funnier because Bill takes these comments from Dan Peterson's blog post to Bill Reel's own Facebook page. And Dan Peterson comes in to make some comments there. But of course, Dan Peterson is never willing to just answer the question. And I have to add here that this entire back and forth between Daniel Peterson and Bill Reel about whether it's Kent Jackson that Dan Peterson is quoting or whether it's Dan Peterson's own words when it actually makes no difference whatsoever is a word game. It's playing games with words. It's what Isaiah called making a man an offender for a word. Ignore what he's saying. Just pick a word out or a phrase out and make him accountable for that. Make him an offender because of his word choice. Ironically, Daniel Peterson wrote a book a number of years ago where he borrowed that expression from Isaiah for the title to his book. It's called Offenders for a Word. And the subtitle of that book is is even more ironic under the circumstances because the subtitle of the book is How Anti-Mormons Play Word Games to Attack the Latter-Day Saints. Well, it appears that playing word games is not exclusive to anti-Mormons, as Professor Peterson has capably demonstrated in this exchange with Bill Real. And even though Daniel Peterson has not gotten around to explaining how it is that he was not lying when he said there's been no suppression of the First Vision accounts, fascinatingly, in one of the comments on Bill Reel's webpage, this is now down to June 15th of 2018, this has been going on for a number of days now, and a poster named Todd Ogden asks this question to Daniel Peterson, from an active member just trying to understand, are you saying there was suppression Or no suppression? Well, Todd Ogden said the magic words from an active member just trying to understand. And when Todd Ogden puts the question to Daniel Peterson, Daniel Peterson tips his hand and gives us to understand what his answer is that attempts to show that he was not lying. Here's what Daniel Peterson says in response to Todd Ogden's question. Are you saying there was suppression or no suppression? Quote, Since the professionalization of the church history department roughly half a century ago, i.e. into the 1960s, that's very important, isn't it? Since the professionalization of the church history department roughly half a century ago, there has plainly been no suppression. What happened before that is debatable and wasn't the subject of my article. I'll probably have more to say about that, though, when I respond To the most recent attacks on my character so there you have it folks that's what daniel peterson's defense is going to be that when he said there was no suppression of first vision accounts he didn't mean there's been no suppression ever he just meant since the professionalization of the church history department in the last 50 years so this is the way that daniel peterson thinks he is going to be vindicated from the allegation That he was lying in the deseret news article but let's look at the deseret news article again and see how well his explanation works remember as part of that article he says moreover they the critics claim the lds church has sought to hide these differing accounts he then says on the whole though such critics are creating difficulties and fomenting scandal where in fact none exists. He then says two other accounts recorded in Joseph's earliest autobiography, that's the 1832 account, as well as in a later journal, that's the 1835 account, were essentially lost and forgotten until the 1960s. Now, why does Daniel Peterson have to say essentially? Because he knows that Joseph Fielding Smith cut out the 1832 account from Book 1 back in the 1930s and hid it in his safe for three decades until the 1960s. Going back to Daniel Peterson's Deseret News article, these two other accounts, including the 1832 account, these other two accounts were essentially lost and forgotten until the 1960s when historians working for the LDS church rediscovered them and very quickly published them. And now to the offending paragraph where he not only obfuscates and withholds information, he actually lies. In other words, Believing Mormon scholars and leaders have known about and have openly spoken and written about the various First Vision accounts for at least 50 years. We know he's referring to the 1832 account because he's previously mentioned it in this article. There's been no scandal, no suppression, and the often exaggerated, if not altogether invented discrepancies between them have been thoroughly examined. Daniel Peterson writes, There's been no suppression of the various first vision accounts. Now what he apparently wants to do is say that because he says in the first sentence that Mormon scholars and leaders have known about and spoken and written about the various first vision accounts for at least 50 years, that somehow that statement modifies his next sentence of there's been no suppression to limiting the no suppression part to the past 50 years. But really the words he uses do not allow such an interpretation. They are two completely different sentences separated by a period. Let me read it to you once again. Pay attention and see if you think Daniel Peterson has a case to be made here in his own defense. In other words, believing Mormon scholars and leaders have known about and have openly spoken and written about the various First Vision accounts for at least 50 years. Period. There's been no scandal, no suppression, And the often exaggerated, if not altogether invented discrepancies between them have been thoroughly examined. I will tell you my own impression, which is that no reasonable person reading that paragraph could possibly think that Daniel Peterson is limiting his claim that there's been no suppression of the 1832 First Vision account to the past 50 years. What he says in the first sentence is that these four accounts have been known about for the past 50 years. And what he says in the second sentence is there's been no suppression. There's nothing that connects his claim of no suppression to only the past 50 years. This is like saying after the 1832 account was suppressed for 30 years, it has not been suppressed for the past 50 years. So therefore there was no suppression. Daniel Peterson is back at his old word games of telling only half the story. But here, telling half the story is the same as telling a lie. The full story is, after the suppression of the 1832 account came to light in the 1960s, there has been no suppression. But Daniel Peterson thinks he can say only the second half of the sentence, there has been no suppression, and it is still true. But it is not true that there has been no suppression because there will always have been those first 30 years when there was a suppression. There is no way for Daniel Peterson to get around that. The only thing Daniel Peterson has left in his bag of tricks is to lie and say that there has been no suppression and then when caught out on his lie to do anything and everything he possibly can in order to avoid explaining why it is that he's not a liar. And as we have seen, this brief comment by Daniel Peterson in response to Todd Ogden's question of whether there was suppression or was no suppression will not suffice. This is the best that Daniel Peterson can do, this is the best explanation he has, and it just doesn't cut it. At least not to my mind, but I will let the listeners judge as to how well Daniel Peterson did in explaining his way out of this one. And I think it's probably fair to say that Daniel Peterson himself recognizes the weakness of that argument. Otherwise, sometime in the past 365 days, he probably would have trotted it out himself in order to show that he's not a liar. Only Daniel Peterson probably recognizes that this doesn't show he's a liar. It would show he's lying again. To cover up for the first lie, it is clear to me that Professor Daniel C. Peterson of Brigham Young University is okay with deceiving people. But why is he deceiving people? Let's dig a little bit deeper. Why is Daniel Peterson deceiving people by saying there's been no suppression of the 1832 First Vision account? Because he thinks the church is true, surely, That's why he's okay with deceiving people. But when he goes out to convince other people of the same thing, i.e. that the church is true, it is because he wants them to remain in the church. Daniel Peterson wants them to live their lives in a certain way and make certain choices that reflect those choices that a good Mormon would make. But please understand this. Daniel Peterson wants to get people to live their lives in a certain way, the Mormon way and Daniel Peterson is willing to deceive them in order to get them to do it. Suddenly, it's not just a game anymore. It's not just a word game anymore. And what do those people think if down the road, they find out that Daniel Peterson was deceiving them, that there really was a suppression? How long have they lived the way Daniel Peterson wanted them to live based on the deceptions Daniel Peterson told them? And how would those people feel when they came to that realization? This incident with Daniel Peterson is a microcosm of what is happening in the church on a bigger level. The church is okay with deceiving the members because the church leaders think the church is true and they want the members to stay in the church and live their lives in a certain very Mormon kind of way. And how do people feel when they find out that the leaders of the church have not been honest with them, have not been straight with them, have not been fully forthcoming with them. They feel betrayed. They feel they have been taken advantage of, and they feel they have been used. And that is why it is so important for leaders of the church to repeat the refrain that they have never hidden anything from the members of the church. That's what the leaders of the church say. Remember when Elder Ballard said, in the face-to-face devotional with Elder Oaks, that there has never been any hiding of the history of the church. They have never hidden anything.
1: And, and some, uh, some are uh, saying that the church has been hiding the fact that there is more than one version of the of the first vision, which is uh, just a, uh, a f- not true. The facts are we don't study, we don't go back and search what has been said on the subject. For example, Dr. James B. Allen of the BYU in 1970, he, he, he produced a, uh, an article for the church magazines explaining all about the different versions of the first vision. How long ago was that article? 1970. That was well, back in 1970. So been hiding that for a long time. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but but it, it's, this, it's, this, it's this idea that the church is hiding something, that, which we would have to say as two apostles who have covered the world and know the history of the church and know the integrity of the First Presidency in the Quorum of the Twelve from the beginning of time, There has been no attempt on the part in any way of the church leaders trying to hide anything from anybody.
0: So now they're lying to cover up the cover up. And this circles us back to what Dan Peterson is saying in the Deseret News article when he states there has been no suppression of the First Vision accounts. Daniel Peterson is supporting the leaders of the church in the same lie that the leaders of the church are saying to the members that lie being that church leaders have never hidden or suppressed anything from the members of the church the critical point here and the point that must not be overlooked is that joseph fielding smith suppressed church history when he hid the 1832 account of the first vision in his safe for 30 years but the suppression continues Because when Daniel Peterson writes that there has been no suppression of the 1832 account of the First Vision, he is once again suppressing history. To put it bluntly, the cover-up continues. So I think now we can see to what extent Daniel Peterson has sold his soul for apologetics and why it is that he is deserving of the title, The Artful Dodger of Mormon Apologetics. So while we spend eternity waiting for Daniel Peterson to get around to writing a response to explain why it is he was not lying when he said there was no suppression of the first vision accounts, I hope you've had as much fun as I have going back over some of the interesting things that have been happening behind the scenes and around the edges of this story. I want to close out this episode with a special song in honor of Daniel Peterson. This song is from the musical, Oliver where Fagin is teaching his young acolytes the philosophy behind why it is that it makes sense to take advantage of other people through the art of deception. It is a philosophy that Daniel Peterson seems to have adopted as his own. And really, would we expect anything less from the artful Dodger of Mormon apologetics? Although Fagin's words are, large amounts don't grow on trees, you've got to pick a pocket or two, The eerily similar philosophy adopted by Daniel Peterson seems to be, the church can't be defended as is. You've got to tell a whopper or two. This one's for you, Professor Peterson. Until next time, this is Radio Free Mormon, signing off the air.
2: I'm she, Oliver.
0: In this life,
2: one thing counts in the bank. Large amounts. I'm afraid these don't grow on trees. You've got to pick a pocket or two. You've got to pick a pocket or two, boys. You've got to pick a pocket or two. Large amounts don't grow on trees. You've got to pick a pocket or two. Let's show them what I have to do, it, my dear. Just a game, Oliver, just a game. Why should we break our backs stupidly paying tax? Better get some untaxed income. Better pick a pocket or two. You got a pick a pocket or two, oh, boys. You got a pick a pocket or two. Boys, A crook gave away what he took. Charity's fine. Subscribe to mine. Get out and pick a pocket or two. You got and pick a pocket or two, boy. From Bill Sykes, he can whip what he likes. I recall he started small, he had to pick a pocket or two, you got to pick a pocket or two. Oh, boy! <laughs> <laughs> got to pick a pocket or two. We can be like old Bill Sykes, if you pick a pocket or Dear old gent passing by, something nice takes his eye. Everything's clear, attack the rear. Get in and pick a pocket or two, you got to pick a pocket or two, boys. You got to pick a pocket or two. When I see someone rich Both my thumbs start to itch Only to find some peace of mind I have to pick a pocket or two got to pick a pocket or two oh. <laughs> got to pick a pocket or two Pick up!